Football player Kevin Everett is miraculously walking after severe spinal cord injury. Is there something on the horizon to help anyone with spinal cord injury or stroke? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, and our guest is Dr. John Kessler, Davy Professor of Stem Cell Biology and Chairman of the Davy Department of Neurology at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago. Dr. Kessler is one of the world's leaders in stem cell research to repair central and peripheral nerve damage. He joins us to talk about applying molecular neurobiology to the clinical problems of spinal cord injury and stroke. Dr. Kessler, welcome to ReachMD. Uh, thank you, Bruce. I'm happy to be here. Spinal cord injury and stroke are frequently cited as diseases that will be treatable using stem cells and molecular biological approaches. Will the strategies for these two types of diseases be the same? No, actually, Bruce, the strategies are going to be entirely different because they're very, very different kinds of disorders. First, spinal cord injury is really a, a question of damage to axons. If we think of the spinal cord as basically a telephone cable connecting the brain with the cells in the lower part of the spinal cord, that cable has been cut, uh, and the wires in that cable are known as axons. So in spinal cord injury, we have to think about getting those axons to grow and reconnect. It is not primarily a problem of cell replacement. In stroke, however, large areas of the brain actually die, so the cells are lost. So in stroke, we have to think about using stem cells and molecular approaches for the more standard or classical kinds of things that we think about using stem cells for, namely cell replacement. So let's start and talk more specifically about the spinal cord injuries. What are the obstacles that must be overcome for us to use stem cells for spinal cord injury, and what strategies are you using right now? There are really a series of obstacles that prevent axons in the spinal cord from regrowing. First, when myelin, the material surrounding the axons and basically acting as the insulation for them, breaks down, it releases a number of molecules which inhibit the outgrowth of fibers. They tend to act through a number of receptors, one of which has the cute name called no-go so, because the fibers don't grow. So we have to overcome those inhibitory molecules. Number two, the adult spinal cord lacks specific signals to tell fibers to regrow. So we have to provide some sort of signals to tell the fibers to grow. Number three, we have the problem that a scar forms at the area of injury of the spinal cord, as well as cavities where cells are lost, and they act as a physical blockade to prevent the fibers from growing through. So we have to overcome the problem of the scar and the physical blockade due to the cavity formation. And then finally, we do get some local cell death, particularly of the cells that make the myelin, the insulation that I talk about. Those cells are called oligodendroglia, as well as some neurons at the area of injury. And we have to think about a small amount of cell replacement in those injuries. So different strategies will be necessary for each of those problems. Number one, with the glial scar and the cavity, we can think about using some sorts of artificial matrix materials to suppress the formation of the glial scar and to fill the cavities to prevent them from blocking fiber outgrowth. 
That happens to be an area that I personally am working on in the laboratory, along with a number of material scientists and, and nanotechnology experts. Second, we have the problem of the inhibitory molecules, and that's where stem cells come in. We can think about using stem cells, genetically engineering them, to secrete inhibitors of the inhibitors, something we call dominant negative inhibitor so that those inhibitory molecules can't prevent fibers from growing out. Then we have the lack of growth factors, the stimulus to tell the fibers to grow. And again, we can use the stem cells and genetically engineer them to secrete factors to tell the fibers to grow out. And then finally, we have the problems of the loss of the oligodendrocytes. Remember, the cells making the insulation for the axons. And that's where the stem cells will be most useful because we can pre-differentiate them to become oligodendrocytes to hopefully remyelinate those fibers. So from an evolutionary perspective, why do you think that there aren't mechanisms already for the body to self-repair a spinal cord injury? Well, of course, this is a matter of speculation. One could argue two different kinds of thoughts. One kind of thought is that the synapses that form, the connections and circuits that have to form are very, very complicated. And if the spinal cord and central nervous system had to rewire itself continually, there'd be the possibility for abnormal circuit formation. I don't happen to think that's likely the likely reason, but it's really not known. A second is, is simply that if the nervous system is damaged sufficiently that that kind of regeneration is needed, it's likely that an organism wouldn't survive in the wild because if our spinal cord is not working and, and we can't move about or if our brains are not working, we are likely to die. So there is no evolutionary reason then to want to maintain an ability to repair them because by the time the repair occurred, the organism would have died anyway. I think that's equally as possible. So you just mentioned the issue of incorrect wiring. So if we use those strategies that you mentioned and can figure out how to do them, will the circuits that are formed be the correct ones? Of course, that's a wonderful question, Bruce, because we don't really know the answer to that yet, and we won't know that until we've learned to actually make the these axons grow out again. I believe that it probably won't be a problem, and, and I'll explain why. We can use the peripheral nervous system as an analogy. Most people have probably heard of something called Bell's palsy, and that's where the face becomes very, very weak on one side because the facial nerve was damaged. That nerve can regrow, and when it regrows, it almost always grows back with the right synapses being formed. Occasionally, they grow back incorrectly so that when somebody smiles, their eye will blink accidentally, or you can get something called crocodile tears where they'll tear inappropriately when they go to move the muscles of the face. But those are the exceptions that prove the rule that the appropriate cues for fibers to grow out are still retained in the adult organism. We know some of the molecules that are present in the central nervous system that mediate that, and they seem to be present. So it is our hope that those cues will still be there. If they're not, then we will have to learn to provide them. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Dr. John Kessler, Davy Professor of Stem Cell Biology and Chairman of the Davy Department of Neurology at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago about applying molecular neurobiology to the clinical problems of spinal cord injury and stroke. So, Jack, are there currently clinical trials that are likely to be able to use these strategies successfully? It's my personal belief that we have not yet progressed sufficiently scientifically and technically to have clinical trials that are going to give us a very positive outcome. I think it's very important for people to understand that simply squirting stem cells into an injured spinal cord 
is not going to work. And it's a little bit of a shame that there are a lot of highly publicized trials going on around the world that are not very well supervised that tend to promise this, and it's simply not going to work that way. I think I explained earlier about the large number of obstacles that have to be overcome, and they are not going to be overcome without some very, very specific scientific and technical advances that I think are going to happen relatively soon, but we're not there yet. And if someone's been so severely injured that he or she is a quadriplegic, it would seem that there's little to lose. So why not try some of these approaches in early clinical trials, even if the chance of success is small? Well, there are a number of reasons. First of all, it's wrong to say they have nothing to lose. And I'll give you an example. If you do a therapy that causes an inappropriate or wrong formation of circuits, you might get pain. So you could take somebody who is quadriplegic but not constantly in pain and then do something even worse, put them constantly in pain. The second thing is that you may then disqualify them for subsequent trials that actually will work, that by intervening you do something that makes it impossible at a later date to be able to use a cure that's successful. And then finally, and this is not trivial, it is very, very expensive to do these kinds of things. You raise enormous hope in patients. And if the trials really have very, very little chance of success, it's very, very inappropriate to charge large amounts of money and to raise a huge amount of hope when that hope is misplaced. I think it's more appropriate to let people understand that we're making a lot of progress and we can see on the horizon appropriate treatments and we have to be patient for them. So let's switch gears now and talk about stroke. What are the strategies that can potentially be used to repair the brain after a stroke? Well, in stroke, as I mentioned previously, areas of the brain actually die. If a large enough area of the brain dies, I have to say to you that right now, I don't see any possible strategy that we can use that's going to allow us to reform the extraordinarily complicated wiring of literally billions of cells. On the other hand, many strokes aren't that large, they're relatively small strokes where they're focal areas of damage, then I think we can think about using stem cells both to patch the areas of damage, to provide ways of getting signals across the areas of damage, and then to provide cells that I spoke about earlier, cells called oligodendrocytes, to remyelinate axons that may have been spared that may not be working because they've lost their myelin. So stated otherwise, I think it will be possible to use these strategies with stem cells for small strokes in the relatively near future, I think we're a long way away from using them for major strokes. What types of complications would you worry about when clinical trials and stroke are undertaken using these strategies? Well, number one, we have to worry about forming inappropriate connections. In the brain, that's less likely to create pain, but it could conceivably cause pain. But we could conceivably miswire the brain in such a way that we would interfere with functions that had been preserved prior to the transplant. When using stem cells, as we mentioned previously, we do have to worry about the possibility of tumor formation. And although I think most of the strategies we'll use, that's a, not a large concern. It's still a concern and one that we'll have to control for carefully because in the brain, we don't have a lot of leeway for tumor formation before there'll be a lot of additional damage potentially caused. So stem cells and gene therapy have both 
raised clinical concerns in the minds of some people. Do you see these issues limiting treatments of spinal cord injury or stroke? Well, of course, people who have ethical concerns for either stem cell therapies or gene therapies are going to have those concerns irrespective of the organ that's damaged. However, diseases of the nervous system are so utterly devastating that I personally find it absolutely impossible to understand how one could morally or ethically try to limit our ability to cure someone who's quadriplegic, who can't move, or cure someone who's lost the ability to speak, or cure someone who's lost the ability to walk because of a stroke. So I think that there are ethical concerns. We all give a great deal of thought to them. But this is a case where the good that's done far, far outweighs any of the possible ethical objections that I've ever heard be brought forth. I want to thank our guest, Dr. John Kessler, Davy Professor of Stem Cell Biology and Chairman of the Davy Department of Neurology at Northwestern University Medical School in Chicago for talking to us about these critical research and treatment issues. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can find our new on-demand and podcast features that will allow you access to our entire program library. And thank you for listening.